there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Well, that was a tough one. Did her sisters identify the body? Yes, but we've got to wait for the dental records to come back to make it official. That bad, huh? Oh, one of the worst I've seen. Her skull was pulverized. Do we have a murder weapon? Something blunt. Handheld. The cops didn't find anything at the scene, but... Whatever he used, he did a number on her. Why didn't anyone hear her scream? Not sure if it happened out in the open. Based on the blood spatter patterns, Sheriff's saying it's likely she was killed somewhere else. I'd say just a few hours before they found her. Do you think he beat her head in like that so nobody'd be able to ID her? If he did, he sure ain't the sharpest knife in the block. Look at this. Her class ring. Still on her finger when they found her. It says Paramount High School. Only other person in Virginia, Minnesota who would have a ring like that is her sister Joyce. And she was wearing one when she walked out of this building not ten minutes ago. So even though we're waiting on dental records... I'm considering the sister's ID official. I'm sorry to say, this here must be Cindy Joy Elias. Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the murder of Cindy Joy Elias. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Virginia, Minnesota, 1977. A sleepy northern Minnesota town on the Masabi Iron Range, a remote corner of the country nestled between three different Indian reservations and right near the Canadian border. In 1976, just a year earlier, Cindy moved back to Brit to live with her father, attend college, and ironically enough, escaped the mean streets of Southern California, where she went to high school. Little did she know that these backwoods country roads would turn out to be the meanest streets of all. Cindy's body was found on an abandoned logging road off Highway 135 near Aurora, Minnesota, about half an hour's drive away from Virginia, where she disappeared. Northern Minnesota's logging roads had, for the most part, been defunct for the better part of a decade. They were originally built not just for logging, but also for hauling iron ore along its processing journey. But roads, like the one that served as Cindy's shallow grave, were now overgrown and abandoned. Meaning whatever happened to Cindy out there, nobody saw or heard a thing. This dump site wasn't a place of convenience. 
In fact, these old logging roads were pretty much out of the way for everyone except locals and hunters. It was for this reason that the cops first decided to question the Elias family about any significance the area might have held to them. Or more specifically, to Cindy. When the sheriff's office called the Elias family in for questioning, however, only Cindy's siblings showed up. Cindy had five older siblings still living nearby in Brit. Most of them had families of their own now, but Cindy was still their baby sister, and they wanted to help any way they could. Cindy's father, Edward, had been in a serious accident just days before she disappeared, and he was still in the hospital. The siblings struggled over when they should tell their father, Edward, as well as their mother, Audrey, who was still living all the way across the country. When Edward didn't show up with his children at the sheriff's station for questioning, the other Elias children didn't want to tell Edward the terrible news just yet, as he was still in critical condition. Did Cindy have any enemies? Maybe a boyfriend she ended things with who didn't want to hear it? Gosh, no. Everyone who meets her just thinks she's a doll. She's... She was so serious about her schooling that she didn't have too much time for boys. Noted. Now, the spot where they found Cindy. Only a hunter or a local would have known about it. Maybe someone who knew their way around the mines? That's damn near everyone in town. Cindy ever mention a boyfriend? Or bring anyone around? No, no, not that I know of. But you gotta understand, only her and Joyce still even live in the house. The rest of us have families of our own. You all have your hands pretty full with Edward, though, since his accident, right? She's got five brothers and sisters here. I'd like to think, even with everything going on with our dad, she'd call one of us before getting into a car with a strange creep. We'll get back to you as soon as we have something. When's that gonna be? Wish I could say, Mr. Elias. I can't even imagine what I'd do if it were my sister. But I can say we're leaving no stone unturned in town. Hell, in the whole Iron Range. As soon as I know something, you will too. The logging road where Cindy's body was found was also very close to the entrance to one of the local mines. Police wondered whether this was just coincidence. The whole Virginia area is full of families whose livelihood came from iron mining. And, up in the crisp northern Minnesota woods not far from the Canadian border, hunting was one of the most popular hobbies. So far, the rough profile police were beginning to piece together described almost everyone in the area. A local who knew their way around wooded areas and maybe around the open pit mines as well. Cindy Elias attended Masabi Range College at the time of her death in March 1977. She was studying to become a social worker. She was friendly, personable, pretty, and fun, but also still kind of the new girl in town. So when it came to her social circle, Cindy had many acquaintances, but very few close friends. But rest assured, the cops interviewed them all. They spoke to everyone who laid eyes on Cindy, from the local hunter who helped them uncover the body, to the boys and girls at the El Dorado bar with Cindy the day she disappeared. The last person who saw Cindy alive was the El Dorado bartender, who said she went outside to look for a ride. Maybe even hitchhike. Hitchhiking had started to lose its appeal by the late 1970s. Stories about peace, free love, and spontaneous road trips were gradually replaced by more macabre tales. Tales of people getting into cars with strangers and never getting out. And Cindy had told her sisters repeatedly that she wanted to move back to Brit from Paramount after high school because she was scared to walk down the streets alone. 
So what would compel an already streetwise 19-year-old college student from California to get into a vehicle with a complete stranger? Unless the killer offering Cindy a ride wasn't a stranger at all. A few days later, in late March 1977, dental records came back and confirmed what law enforcement already knew. The body they found in the woods off Highway 135, whose skull was battered beyond the point of recognition, was in fact Cindy Joy Elias. Beating someone to death at close range shows a lot of anger for a complete stranger. Unless that stranger panicked and tried to prevent local law enforcement from identifying the body. Whatever the motive, Cindy's killer unleashed an alarming and abnormal amount of aggression on a sweet young girl with no known enemies. And unlike many other victims in her demographic during that time period, cops didn't mention anything to the press about Cindy suffering any kind of sexual assault. Which rules out some other serial killers in Cindy's area at that time. It's possible that a truck driver, migrant worker, or someone visiting from just across the border in Canada came upon Cindy in a vulnerable moment and preyed on her. But how would they know about the logging roads as a place to dump her body? Just in case, cops questioned everyone, even those who might not fit the profile. Order up. You said Cindy had a lot of regulars? Oh, yeah. This is a motor inn, so... A lot of big rig drivers, traveling salesmen, day laborers coming over from Canada to pick up extra work, that sort of thing. That's our bread and butter. You see the same faces often? Sometimes. I had a feeling I would get a lot more regulars after Cindy started working here. Anybody pay special attention to Cindy? Almost everyone, Sheriff. Didn't you just hear what I said? This is mostly a trucker hotel. Full of men driving through this Minnesota tundra who ain't seen a woman in at least six weeks. And then there's Cindy, a well-mannered, nice Minnesota girl with a California hairdo. Anybody seem keen on seeing her outside of the restaurant? Nah, not that I saw. But some of these roughnecks? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if one of them got the idea to try and follow her home. We'll need to see your reservation books. Of course. Anything you need. This is just so horrible. Oh, the poor family. Especially with Edward so sick, too. Cindy was just, just a breath of fresh air. The local sheriff's office spent the spring of 1977 questioning Cindy's boss, co-workers, classmates, neighbors, teachers, everyone who knew her. They spoke to everyone in the hotel's reservation books the weekend Cindy was murdered, and even ran down truckers who were now in other states to get their alibis. Cindy's siblings were incredibly cooperative and let police search through Cindy's belongings, journals, and school books, looking for any signs of a secret life. Had Cindy run away, maybe back to a boy in California nobody knew about, and just happened to cross the path of a random killer along the way. Our story will continue in a moment, after a brief message. Now, the story continues. Watch where you're driving. Get off the side of the road. Wait a second. Don't I know you? Sure do, sweetheart. You're the man from the restaurant who ordered the fish sticks and applesauce? Generous tip. I knew you'd remember me. Hey, wait. What are you doing? Let me go. Let me... No! Stop! 
Law enforcement scoured both the crime scene and the El Dorado bar and its parking lot, looking for signs of a struggle, or even better, a possible witness. After an exhaustive search, they found nothing. The last person who saw Cindy Joy Elias alive was the bartender, who had heard her say that she was going to find a ride, maybe even hitchhike. But in a town like Virginia, which was small enough that there were few strangers, police wondered if Cindy got in a car with someone she knew. Hey! Hey, man! Oh boy, am I glad to see you. Cindy? I thought that was you. Need a ride home? You bet I do. It's cold out here. Thin-skinned now that you're a California girl, huh? Not thin-skinned, just sensible. Well, I'll get in then. I'll take you home. You know the way, right? You bet. Cindy's sisters still swear and told a local paper just last year that they think Cindy's killer is someone who knew her and possibly the rest of the family. But if they're right, he's hidden his identity very well. Cops soon reached the point where they had questions about Cindy that could be answered best by her parents. Joyce notified their mother, Audrey, who was still living out west at the time. Audrey flew back to Minnesota immediately, racked with guilt as any mother would be in this situation. Cindy's tragic fate is undoubtedly every parent's worst fear when they send their high school graduate off into the world. It was hard to tell Audrey, a woman who they knew could be fragile at times, about Cindy's death. The siblings dreaded telling hospital-bound Edward even more. But now that they knew that Cindy was dead, they knew the conversation was inevitable. Shortly after hearing of his daughter's death, Edward Elias suffered the first of several strokes. His health never fully recovered. According to a local paper, he was in a nursing home within a year. As time went on, the local sheriff's office started to panic. They thought they were looking at a fairly straightforward investigation. All evidence pointed to a local who knew the victim. And in a geographically isolated area like the Misabi Iron Range, it didn't take sheriffs long to run out of locals to question. So why didn't they turn up a single solid lead? How does a killer who bludgeons a girl to death in a small town in the middle of nowhere vanish into thin air? Can I see your Canadian passport, please, sir? Let me get it. Here you go. Where are you coming from tonight? Had a delivery in Duluth, made good time. Been on the road a few weeks now, so I wanted to drive home tonight and surprise my family. My wife will be glad to see you. She'll be happier if I find a rest stop clean enough to shave my beard off first. Might want to change your shirt, too. What's that stain on your collar? What, this? It's, uh, it's... Looks like blood. I can explain. Would you mind stepping out of the rig, please, sir? I went hunting on the road. Hell of a deer population in this part of town. Wanted to bring home some venison steaks to surprise my wife. So then where's the meat? Excuse me? The venison steaks. Where are they? I didn't get none. Nicked a rabbit by mistake, but it wasn't dead yet. Had to finish the job. Kind of at close range. I guess I missed some of the splatter. I couldn't just let it die alone and slow like that. Real humane of you. A lot of people would have left it for dead. A lot of people are cruel. Well, hurry on home to the wife now. 
Virginia, Minnesota was only about two hours from the Canadian border. Maybe Cindy's killer was a Canadian citizen, and he was able to dump her body before slipping safely out of the sheriff's jurisdiction. Was the killer in their midst all along and somehow evading questioning, but police just never realized it? Or had someone they'd already questioned just lied right to their face? There is one theory that may seem obvious but wasn't pursued or discussed much in the media, that Cindy's killer was a member of local law enforcement. Or someone posing as one with access to a squad car. Oh, shoot. Evening, miss. Evening, officer. You do know hitchhiking's illegal. Yeah, but in the grander scheme of things, isn't it a victimless crime? The law is the law, miss. Now, you raise a good point, and you don't seem like a degenerate type. I'm not, officer, I promise. I'm a student at the local college. I just need to get home in time to get a good night's sleep before work tomorrow. And none of my friends in there are in any position to drive me. You can't call your dad, brother, boyfriend, someone who can come pick you up? No boyfriend in the picture, and everyone else is at work. My dad's in the hospital. Oh, sorry to hear that. I'll give you a lift home. Keep this between us. Your family's got enough on their plate, it seems like. Oh, thank you so much. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Tell me on the road. It's cold out here. What's your name? Are you new? I don't think I met you at the station after my dad's accident. Brand new. You're the first civilian to ride in my squad car. Oh, lucky me. Yes, indeed. Lucky you. Cindy being killed by a member of local law enforcement or someone posing as one would make a lot of missing pieces fall into place. It would explain the clever, remote, discreet location where Cindy's body was found. It would explain her cause of death. A cop would have an object on his person capable of inflicting the kind of blunt force trauma Cindy's skull sustained. It would also have given the killer the opportunity to insert himself in the investigation, which some killers in the past have liked to do. It would also explain why Cindy, a streetwise girl who fled Southern California for her sleepy hometown of Brit because she was starting to get scared walking the streets alone, would get into a car without hesitation with someone she didn't know. Cops are supposed to be pinnacles of trustworthiness and reliability, especially in small communities. Or, if Cindy was indeed hitchhiking, she might not have had much of a choice about getting into a cop car, as hitchhiking was illegal at the time. Finally, it would also explain why generations of local sheriffs and special agents from Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension failed to ever get a solid prime suspect in their sights. If he was in on the investigation and right under their noses the whole time. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Months turned to years. Cindy's case was still turning up no solid suspects. In the early 2000s, over two decades after Cindy's death in March of 1977, law enforcement outsourced the case to Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Cold Case Unit. They specialized in unsolved cases, and their labors had shown some success in the past. But even with fresh eyes on the case, 
Every lead they ran down still led to a dead end. Cindy's murder left a ripple effect of unrest. Cops working the original case began to retire, and some even began dying off. Former Sheriff Joe Scovich said years later in 2017, even though I've been retired for five years, I think of this case often. I wish the results were more positive. Cindy's brother Bruce passed away very young, only 10 years after Cindy did. The Elias siblings also indicated to the local paper that Cindy's death left all of them with a sense of guilt. Her sisters are quoted as saying, it tore our family apart, and it was the beginning of everything bad. Cindy's sister Judy said that many harsh words were exchanged among family members, and the stress led to heavy drinking by some. It shaped a lot of what happened to us. Judy admitted to local press that it made her an overprotective mother, while her other sister, Joyce, said Cindy's murder had made her more paranoid around strangers. Cindy's father, Edward, suffered several strokes and was living in nursing care. His health deteriorated rapidly. Cindy's death left Audrey incapacitated by depression. In 2008, Cindy's sisters said that their mother, then in her 80s, still had a hard time with Cindy's death. The surviving members of the Elias family desperately needed some sense of closure to continue their grieving process. But as years passed, they started to seriously question whether or not they'd get it. Since Cindy's murder in 1977, the development of DNA profiling has helped police close a number of long-standing cold cases. Investigators compared DNA samples from caught criminals to archived samples in DNA databases to see if there were any matches along the long list of random unsolved murders. For the law enforcement officers investigating the death of Cindy Joy Elias, this meant that if Cindy's killer was a serial predator who just happened to be passing through, they still stand a decent chance of being able to track him down. The Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Cold Case Unit had gained major breaks on other unsolved cases this way, and officers working Cindy's case hoped that they'd be able to come up with a new suspect list by scouring databases for murderers with the same signature as Cindy's, and perhaps stumbling upon her killer that way. As years went by, leads in Cindy's murder investigation trickled in more and more slowly. Still, the BCA cold case unit refused to give up hope. They'd had some success in the past, closing cold cases even without DNA evidence to help. Because while science can speak many truths, sometimes money talks even louder. Another tactic the BCA cold case unit used often was offering large cash incentives to anyone who came forward with productive information about a cold case. It worked often enough to consistently close a small handful of cold cases in Minnesota, including one even closer to Cindy's neck of the woods. The abduction and murder of 16-year-old Julie Holmquist back in 1998. Like Cindy, Julie was killed in a sleepy town in northern Minnesota, right near the Canadian border. And, like Cindy, a seemingly finite suspect pool yielded no solid leads. Her body was found a month later in a gravel pit, too badly decomposed to properly determine a cause of death. In 2002, after four years of investigative trails running cold, 
the BCA cold case unit decided to try offering a sizable reward for tips leading to the capture of Julie's killer. The reward caused a resurgent interest in the case. Soon, based on tips that they got in response to the reward, investigators were able to piece together enough leads to close in on Julie's killer, a local man who'd previously gone undetected by police and even inserted himself into the investigation after Julie disappeared. So the BCA cold case unit began to wonder, if a hefty reward helped them solve Julie Holmquist's murder, could it work for Cindy Elias too? If the BCA cold case unit was going to do a full court press on Cindy's case and consider posting a sizable reward, they needed to be prepared for new leads coming in. Cindy was murdered in March 1977, long before modern forensic science developed the dexterity with DNA we know today. So law enforcement knew that there were a lot of people of interest from the 1977 case, who they never got comprehensive DNA samples from. Including Cindy herself. Exhuming Cindy's remains for further DNA testing could yield a lot of new information, and maybe even point to new suspects. But first, her family would have to approve. When law enforcement approached the Elias family about exhuming Cindy's body in 2008, they were met with understandable grief and heartbreak, but little resistance. As we mentioned last week, Cindy's murder left her siblings with a lack of closure. The years had not been kind to them. The trauma of digging Cindy's body up was just a drop in the bucket for them after years of being left to wonder what had happened to her. And so, Cindy's surviving family members weighed their discomfort against the possibility of finding answers after all these years. And agreed to have her remains exhumed for testing. Law enforcement hoped to find some new DNA evidence, possibly some samples to check against the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Cold Case Unit's database. They even took DNA samples from her relatives just to have next-of-kin matches in case they weren't able to get a good sample from Cindy. Cops took swabs from nearly everyone in the Virginia area who was a suspect at the time of the murder. Even in 2008, 30 years after Cindy's murder, the townspeople were very cooperative. Cindy's murder altered the spirits of the sleepy, snowy towns of Virginia and Britt forever. The local paper published stories about Cindy's death faithfully, marking every anniversary and every development in the case with warnings that whoever killed Cindy should not rest easy. Virginia, Minnesota was determined to hold them accountable. With new DNA, new technology, and advances in forensic science and renewed interest in the case from local papers, law enforcement was hopeful that exhuming Cindy's remains would lead to a break in the case. Sadly, they were sorely mistaken. All their leads took them to dead ends. There was another possibility, one becoming more and more viable each day. The investigators were all thinking, but perhaps afraid to say. Police worried that Cindy's killer had already died. After all, by the time Cindy's remains were exhumed in 2008, it had been 31 years since her murder. There's a saying that two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. And what if Cindy's killer took the secret of her final moments to the grave with him and investigators were already too late? Build a house, exclaims John. For the Wendy, said Curly. For the Wendy, said John aghast. Why, she's only a girl. 
That, explained Curly, is why we are her servants. Years later, Cindy's sisters, Judy and Joyce, still read at her grave on nice days. As of 2008, the BCA cold case unit has now attached a $50,000 reward to information leading to the conclusion of Cindy's case. In the years since Cindy's death, the Masabi Iron Range has seen a sharp economic downturn. Over 40% of jobs on the range have disappeared since 2008, as hardworking miners were replaced by technology that could do their jobs for them. The people on the range adapted, like any hardy frontiersman descendants would, but still, $50,000 would be a life-changing amount of money for the average resident of the region. If that reward isn't temptation enough for someone to come forward, what will it take to bring the Elias family some justice? March 23, 2017, marked the 40-year anniversary of Cindy Joy Elias's murder. Even after 40 years, all that remained for Cindy's siblings was unanswered questions and unresolved grief. Sometime between the exhumation of Cindy's remains and the 40th anniversary of her murder, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension dissolved their cold case unit. Individual agents now assist local law enforcement on cold cases when available, but the BCA no longer had the bandwidth for a separate division all its own. In one last United Initiative in 2008, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension created a deck of cold case playing cards. A deck of cards with facts and faces of 52 unsolved murders in the state that the BCA sent to different law enforcement precincts and prisons throughout the country. Cindy Joy Elias is the Six of Diamonds. The initiative enjoyed moderate success and even led to the identification of a Jane Doe murder victim in southern Minnesota. Sadly, the initiative turned up no new leads in Cindy's case, and with the BCA's cold case unit now defunct, the murder investigation was kicked back to the Virginia, Minnesota Sheriff's Department after 2008. With the supply of tips and leads drying up and her own family losing hope her killer will ever be found, the murder of Cindy Joy Elias threatens to go from unsolved case to urban legend. One thing's for sure. The shocking act of violence changed the quality of life in Virginia, Minnesota for years to come. So now that we've laid out all of the facts and all of the theories, let's talk about who we think killed Cindy Joy Elias. All signs definitely point to a local. The remote location where Cindy's body was found the fact that nobody near the El Dorado bar that night noticed any suspicious vehicles or activity. Also, the fact that Cindy seemed to have gone with this person without putting up much of a commotion. Nobody inside the bar heard anything, and there were no signs of a struggle in the parking lot. It's plausible that someone could have physically overpowered Cindy before she put up a fight. But even then, it's hard to believe nobody heard her scream or scuffle outside. These factors combined make the theory that Cindy was killed by someone posing as a member of law enforcement or other authority figure an objectively convincing one. Cindy's sisters said that on multiple occasions, Cindy told them that she moved back to Minnesota because she didn't feel comfortable walking the streets of Paramount alone at night anymore. She moved back home to feel safe. So it's easy to see why Cindy wouldn't think twice about accepting a ride from someone in a squad car claiming to be a member of law enforcement. 
Cops are supposed to keep people like Cindy safe. She certainly wouldn't have had any reason to be suspicious of someone who told her they were with local law enforcement or even the highway patrol. Not when she already felt safe and at home on the Iron Range. Especially since, if she was caught hitchhiking, which is technically illegal, Cindy likely thought getting in the car wasn't an option. So given what we know about her personality and stage of life at the time of her death, and the location where her body was found, it seems very possible that Cindy Joy Elias's killer was someone posing as an authority figure, such as a member of law enforcement. Above all, given the location where her body was found, it seems highly probable that law enforcement's assessment is probably right. She was killed by someone who knew the area, and possibly even the Elias family. One thing's for sure. With each passing year, Cindy's family and the local sheriff's office still investigating the case become more and more afraid that the real reason that they're not able to catch Cindy Joy Elias's killer is because he's no longer alive to atone for his crime. We wish we had more answers for you, but as time goes on, Cindy Joy Elias's murder case keeps growing colder than the Minnesota snow. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Lorelai Ignis and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Sarah Miller-Cruz, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. 